Good morning, Grace Point. It is so good to see you today. So glad you're here, whether you're here every week or maybe this is your first time, wherever you are in the world, whenever you happen to be watching. We're so glad you found us and we're so glad you're here. We're going to continue a series that we've been in for the last several weeks called Bible Stories for Grownups, Hebrew Bible Edition. Um, and in this series, we're coming back to some of the stories that many of us, many of us were taught as kids. Um, and the focus was usually on how these stories were, one, they literally happened exactly as they're written, and two, it was often just boiled down to some kind of moral, like if you don't do what God tells you to do, you'll get swallowed by a big fish, right? Like that sort of approach. And for some of us, as we've grown up, um, we just can't see these stories in the same way. We can't approach them in the same way. It's almost like if, it has to, if that's the only way to approach these stories, then maybe we're out, we have become aware of questions and discrepancies and maybe some inconsistencies or, or even that there are just divergent, different interpretations of these texts and they don't allow us to take them at face value any longer. This week we're going to engage not one story, but sort of a story arc. Um, and this is the story of Jacob and Esau. And over the years, I've kind of gone through and picked out certain moments and done sermons on them. But as I've been thinking about the whole, sort of all the episodes strung together and what that creates and what happens there, um, I think it's interesting because I think something that happens toward the end of their story is actually shocking and surprising. There, there may be a, an actual swerve coming at the end of the story. So, so to kind of uh, just begin, Jacob and Esau were twins, and they were born to Isaac, who we met last week. We last saw him bound on an altar uh, with his dad pulling back an eye, if you remember that. Um, and he was born, so they were born to Isaac and his wife, Rebecca. But even before they really entered the world, they were already in the womb in conflict. In Genesis 25, the first sort of reference to these boys is this. The boys pushed against each other inside of Rebecca. And she said, if this is what it's like, why did this happen to me? So she went to ask the Lord, and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two different peoples will emerge from your body. One people will be stronger than the other. The older will serve the younger. So she's having a, a difficult pregnancy, and she goes and inquires, and she's told, well, what's happening is there are two, two nations are represented by the, the babies that you're carrying right now. And, and eventually they're going to enter the world and this conflict that's been happening is going to spill over and it's going to continue. So Rebecca gives birth and the first child who comes out was covered in red hair, like, like Chewbacca, I don't know, head to toe, red hair. Uh, and they named him Esau. And immediately afterward, his brother came out gripping Esau's heel. So Esau's born, and after Esau, Jacob has a hold of his heel and is holding on as he enters the world. The actual, the name Jacob means sort of grasper or supplanter, and it carries this idea of somebody who's grasping for something, reaching and trying to get a hold of something, and maybe even a bit of a trickster in the way they're going about it. Um, the brothers begin to grow, and as they begin, as happens with kids, right, they begin to develop different personalities and interests. I see that with my kids. They, they, as they've grown, they were interested in one thing and maybe all the same thing, but as they start to get older, people start developing their own little personalities and quirks and interests, and this happened to them. Esau was a hunter and an outdoorsman, and Jacob was sort of a quiet home buddy. He, he wasn't, so they were almost polar opposites. Jacob liked to stay around home, was kind of quiet. Esau was sort of the guy going out into the field and hunting and doing that sort of thing. And to make the conflict that sort of brought them into the world worse, 
is their parents picked favorites. Isaac favored Esau because he loved to eat the game Esau would bring home. And Rebecca favored Jacob. And that, that's really a trick if you're a parent and you have more than one child. Uh, because sometimes you'll be, end up being accused of loving one more than the other. And I'll never forget something my, my mom had, had said to me about her dad. He was my, we called him Pop. That there were four of them. Uh, and that when they were with Pop, they each felt like the favorite. That he had a certain way of making sure they all felt loved and special. And, and but one of the things that happens is you do, as your kids begin to grow, you, you develop similar interests with, with ones that you don't develop with others. It doesn't mean you love them more. It doesn't mean that you say, oh, hey, you should be more like your brother. You should be more like your sister, right? It just means that the relationships are different. It kind of feels like in this story that this picking favorites was very, very well established and very well known. This is not sort of a subtle, nuanced well, you know, I, I really love when, when Esau brings back that game. It's, it's a whole, it seems like a whole other sort of, they're setting these guys up for failure. And then there's this episode early on in their story where Jacob essentially cons Esau out of his birthright. Now, a birthright in, in a patriarchal ancient culture like this, a birthright mean, means the firstborn would get a double portion. So when, when the father would die, when everything would be divided, the older brother would get double and the younger brother would get one, essentially one portion. So it's sort of a two to one ratio. So here's the story. Once when Jacob was boiling stew, Esau came in from the field hungry and said to Jacob, I'm starving. Let me devour some of this red stuff, right? It's in, in the original Hebrew of the Hebrew Bible, this sort of reads sort of a very like clunky, uh, almost frenzied sort of, it's sort of writing. Esau comes back, maybe, did he not catch something? Did he not kill something? We don't know. He comes back and he says, I'm so hungry. Give me some of that red stuff. And it said, the next note in the text says, that's why his name is Edom or red. Remember Edom. He's also known, Esau is also known as Edom, which is a word that means red. Jacob said, so Esau comes back and he's hungry. He's like, give me some of the red stuff. And Jacob says, uh, okay, but sell me your birthright today. Right, so he, he has a hungry brother in front of him. And he says to his brother, oh, you're hungry. You want some, you want some stew? Then sell me your birthright. Your birthright for a bowl of lentils. And Esau says, since I'm going to die anyway, what good is my birthright to me? It's sort of that he hit that zone that your kids hit when they haven't eaten in a little while, but they're by no means like should be starving. And yet they act like they're starving. That's sort of where Esau is at right now. So what good is it to me anyway if I'm dead? And Jacob says, give me your word today. And he did. He sold his birthright to Jacob. So Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. And this is another in Hebrew, really kind of frenzy, clunky, just sort of like very non-elegant. He ate, drank, got up and left, showing just how little he thought of his birthright. This sort of, he, he just eats it and he walks away and he doesn't give it another thought. Jacob ha has taken advantage of a hungry Esau to begin to worm his way into the few, sort of be becoming the dominant brother in the relationship. So Jacob, the, the supplanter, the guy holding the heel, the trickster, he's living up to the meaning of his name. It's sort of the, the big story maybe that most people know about with Jacob and Esau is that when his, their father Isaac was near death, he summoned Esau and he asked him to go hunt, kill, and prepare his favorite game meal. And once the meal was finished, Isaac would bless Esau 
uh, and give him the firstborn blessing. Now, this is, again, in, in a culture where they actually understood that words have power. They believed that when you would speak words over somebody's life, that it could influence the direction and the trajectory and the outcome of their life. And so as the firstborn, the firstborn would be given blessing of, of, of sort of being the new patriarch of the family, of inheriting the most, of having a good, successful life, of, of thriving and, and being essentially over the rest of the family. And so this is going to happen. Now, what we also are told is Isaac's vision was almost gone. He, he couldn't really see. And so Rebecca, Isaac's wife, who favors Jacob, she hears this. She knows he's got poor vision. So Esau goes out to hunt. And while he's gone, she prepared a meal for Isaac from like their own flocks. But she prepared it in such a way that, uh, that he wouldn't tell the difference somehow. And Jacob is supposed to take it in and feed Isaac and get the blessing. But Jacob realizes there's a problem. My brother is a hairy, hairy individual. How am I going to, I mean, if, if dad touches me, he's going to know that I am not Esau. And so she takes some goat skins and ties them around. So he puts on Esau's clothes. So he's got the scent of Esau on him. And he goes in and when Isaac smells, he knows something's wrong with the voice. He knows it doesn't sound like Esau, but he catches a whiff of the clothing and he feels the goat and he's like, this is my son Esau. And so he blesses him. It absolutely works. Isaac blesses Jacob with the firstborn blessing. And as soon as Jacob leaves, in comes Esau. You could not stage manage this better. In comes Esau and he arrives with dinner and he says, I'm here for the blessing. Here's your food. And Isaac begins to tremble and shake and weep. And Esau joins in when they discover that they have been hoodwinked by Jacob. Esau has lost a birthright. He's lost a blessing. Jacob has essentially taken, conned, tricked Esau, and now his father out of his place, his position in the family. And then what comes next is pretty much expected. Genesis 27, verse 41, it's pretty Pretty straightforward. Esau was furious at Jacob because his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, when the period of mourning for the death of my father is over, I'll kill my brother. Way back at the beginning of Genesis chapter four, we have two brothers, one jealous of the other who kills. And now we have another setting with two brothers where one is so angry he wants to kill the other. And you really, I mean, like there's a certain part of, I mean, I know we don't know anything in our world today about inheritance squabbles or anything like that, but there, there's a certain amount of, like you feel, you feel like you're supposed to feel bad for Esau, but yet somehow Jacob ends up being cast as the hero of the story, right? I mean, Jacob is the one who, I mean, it's, it's not Abraham, Isaac, and Esau, right? It's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those are the patriarchs. And yet Esau's the guy who can, and maybe he's making some, maybe, you know, trading your birthright for a bowl of soup is something you need to think about a little harder. But it really seems like Esau's the guy who's being victimized here by his brother, who maybe is just a little more cunning, a little more clever, a little more, a little more willing to deceive than he is. But whatever the case, Esau plans to kill Jacob. And Rebecca, mom, finds out. She loves her boy Jacob. And so she says, you've Got to get out of here. Your brother Esau is going to, when the days of mourning your father are over, your brother's going to kill you. And so here's what she says. I want you to go to my brother's house, so your uncle's house. I want you to go there, not only for safety, I want you to go there to find a wife. And again, for us, and that, that may sound like going to the family reunion to meet your future partner, uh, but this is, this is how family systems worked in the ancient world. And so go and you'll go there and you'll meet 
um, your uncle, and from there you'll find a wife. And so Jacob goes. He has an encounter with God along the way that's pretty, pretty incredible with this whole ladder reaching to the stairway to heaven kind of story. And when he gets there, he ends up falling for one of his uncle Laban's daughters. And he asks to marry her. And Laban says, if you work for seven years, you can, you can marry her. Her name is Rachel. And then he said, when they get married, um, after they consummate the relationship, Jacob awakes the next morning to find out that it's the wrong sister. It's Lee, the older sister. And so he works another seven years to get the hand of Rachel in marriage. And eventually, so it's almost like the guy who's been doing all the tricking and and deceiving has now met his match in his uncle. Uh, And eventually, though, Jacob and his family flourish. They become very wealthy. Their crops, nope. Their flocks uh, grow and they amass more and more. And it finally becomes to a breaking point with his uncle that they need to go separate ways. And so Jacob decides that he's got to go home. And he's going to take all of his family and all of his uh, animals and everything he's got, all the wealth he's amassed, and he's going to take them and go back home. The problem is on the way home, Jacob has to go through the territory known as Edom, which is another name for Esau. So for Jacob to go home, he's got to go through his brother's backyard. And there's this whole scene in the text where Jacob is heading that way and he discovers that Esau is coming to meet him. And so here's what the text says, Genesis 32. Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau toward the land of Seir, the open country of Edom. He gave them these orders. So Jacob's sending some people to head him off. Say this to my master Esau. Notice the language there, my master Esau. This is the message your your servant, Jacob. I mean, he's definitely being self-deprecating. I've lived as an immigrant with Laban, where I've stayed till now. I own cattle, donkeys, flocks, men servants, and women servants. I'm sending this message to my master now to ask that he be kind. The messengers returned to Jacob and said, We went out to your brother Esau, and he's coming to meet you with 400 men. Jacob was terrified and felt trapped. So he divided the people with him and the flocks, cattle, and camels into two camps. He thought if Esau meets the first camp and attacks it, at least the other camp will be left to escape. I mean, can you believe this? He's got essentially two wives and families and and animals and servants and all that. And he divides them into two and essentially sends the the wife he doesn't like more. uh, He just sends her on and he's trying to make sure the others are more protected if things go sideways. But if you're Jacob, this is the worst case scenario. You hope to just kind of let Esau know you're coming through, but you're just going to slide through and be on your way. And you find out, nope, not going to happen. And not only is Esau coming, but he's got 400 soldiers with him, and they're going to meet you on the journey. And so Jacob kind of makes this plan where he's going to send a bunch of his stuff. He's just going to give it as a gift to Esau, sort of a way of saying, you know, I stole your blessing from you. This really would have been all yours Here you go. You can have a big chunk of it. Just let us pass. And so before the meeting happens between Jacob and Esau, um, because the last time you saw Esau, if you're Jacob, you bamboozled him out of his blessing. So that night, Jacob slips off alone to sort of prepare himself. And the text just says that he wrestled with a man until dawn broke. Now, there's all sorts of debate and questions. Is this God? Is this man sort of a symbol for God, even though we know God doesn't have a body or that God isn't gendered? But is there some way that this is like 
anthropomorphizing God? Is this, we're supposed to see this as God? Some people say it's supposed to be sort of an angel situation. Um, there's also some really interesting stuff I've been reading about how some people think Jacob is sort of wrestling with his own conscience, with his own self here. And he's, he's trying to figure out who he is and what he's going to do. And we'll come back to the story at some point because it's really meaningful. But at the end of this encounter, they wrestle until daybreak. And the man he's wrestling with says, let me go. Dawn is breaking. And Jacob says, I won't let you go till you bless me. And there's sort of this, right? The thing Jacob has been conniving and tricking and deceiving and bamboozling for his entire life has been just a little more. Just a be- better than Esau, just a blessing. And he, he says, give me a blessing. And the man says, what is your name? And Jacob says, Jacob. Now, the last time Jacob was sort of asked his name, he said his name was Esau. He lied. He deceived. And now it's in this moment being wrestling. This is a whole other sermon. He's wrestling with this man, and Jacob has to own up. This, I'm Jacob. I'm the, the trickster. I'm the deceiver. I'm this guy doing this thing. And then the man says, you're no longer Jacob. You're now Israel. And this is where the name Israel comes from. It means essentially somebody who is wrestling with, with God in a way. And then the man touches his hip and Jacob lets him go, and he goes, disappears, goes away. Um, and Jacob then gets up, and he walks with a limp the rest of his life after this encounter. And it's really meaningful, so we'll come back to that. But there's something about this where Jacob left home a trickster, a deceiver, somebody willing to do whatever to whoever to improve his own standing and position. And he returns as Israel with a limp, having been given a heavy dose of his own medicine. And now he's got to confront what he spent his adult life running from, which is an angry brother named Esau. When they last met, Jacob had all the power. Jacob had stolen the, conned him out of the birthright, stolen the blessing. And he left Esau on the outside looking in. And now Esau has the power. He has the power to seek revenge or he has the power to grant forgiveness. He has the power to stop Jacob, to take all of his stuff, to kill his family, to wipe everything out and to make him suffer. He can do that. Esau has the power. Jacob is going through his turf. He has say. Then in Genesis 33, the encounter happens. Esau arrives and says, what's the meaning of this entire group of animals that I met? What's the gift for? What's that that about? Jacob says, to ask for my master's kindness. Jacob is no longer sort of the bragging, the, the, the guy who's brash, the guy who's, he's now more reserved more willing to defer to his older brother who he had spent his youth trying to take everything from. To ask for my master's kindness. Esau said, I already have plenty, my brother. Keep what's yours. What about that response? I've already got enough. What's all these, what are all these animals? Oh, oh you're, it's essentially you're trying to bribe me. To, you feel guilty because you thought you took, no, 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 I, I've got everything I need. Jacob said, no, no, please do me the kindness of accepting my gift, seeing your face. Listen to this. Please accept the gift because seeing your face is like seeing God's face since you've accepted me so warmly. Seeing your face is like seeing God's face. That's not what you expect in this story. I mean, you, you talk about a swerve. The last time we really see Esau, he's plotting his brother's death. And now, later, after they've both grown up, after they've both kind of done their own thing, they meet up again, and Esau meets Jacob, not in anger, not in a desire for revenge, not, not, in a, not trying to get even or to, to do to him what he had done to Esau. He meets Jacob in kindness. The years had softened the blow. The years had taught Esau something. 
Esau had a good life. And you could either he could either spend his time sort of ruminating on what happened before and let that define his life, or Esau could begin to realize everything that was right in front of him. And yes, something had been taken and something had been lost. And I'm sure there was always going to be a sense of loss around that. But Esau also has had a good life. He's done well for himself. And in this moment, after all these years, he has no desire to punish Jacob. He's just glad to see his brother. I think this unexpected ending is the point. I think it's the meaning of the whole story. Everything these two boys go through. And the way we tend to teach this story is that Jacob is the good one. Jacob is the hero. Jacob is the one who is, you know, picked by God to be special and do all the things. And Esau is the bad one. He deserves what he got. I mean, he traded it for a bull stew, right? And yet nothing about this story suggests the way the story ends suggests that that's actually true. Esau is the victim of the unbridled ambition of his brother Jacob. And yet it is in the face of Esau that Jacob sees the face of God. It is in the face that greets him warmly the face that meets him with love and not hate, with welcome and not rejection. That's where he sees the face of God. What do we do with this story? What do we do with it? You know, many of the stories in the Bible, but especially in Genesis, these stories sort of function as uh, a teleology, which teleology means that they're trying to explain how things are. So why are things the way they are? There's one story in Genesis about the Tower of Babel, and essentially the Tower of Babel story happens, and at the end, it's like, oh, this is why there are so many languages, because this, this story happened. And there's actually an interesting comeback to that in Acts chapter 2, where people are speaking a language and everybody understands them. It's sort of an undoing of that. Maybe we'll come to that when we get to the New Testament. But that, the story of Jacob and Esau serves the same purpose in a lot of ways. It's trying to explain why things are how they are. So historically, this story uh, of these two brothers is explaining the contentious relationship between two countries, Israel and Edom. Um, so when, when Rebecca's carrying the children, uh, the, the voice of God, somebody speaks for God to her and says, there are two nations in your womb, and, and it's Israel and it's Edom. Israel's the younger kingdom. It became larger and more prosperous and ended up dominating Edom for a long period of time. Edom eventually would get its independence from Israel. But it, it's, it, so this is very pra- in some ways very practical geopolitical story, maybe warning about these relationships can really go sideways. Um, and if you want to get a picture, it's, you can find places in the Hebrew scriptures. But here's one from Psalm 137. It begins by the rivers of Babylon. We sat and wept. And it's a story about the exile, about the destruction of Jerusalem and the Babylonians essentially deporting the, um, the Jews into exile. And Psalm 137, which is lamenting, that says this, Lord, remember what the Edomites did on Jerusalem's dark day. Rip it down, rip it down, all the way to its foundations, they yelled. So when they were having their worst day, the temple was destroyed and they were being taken away. Edom is essentially, yes, they're finally getting what's coming to them. Rip it down, tear it down. And maybe part of what this story is saying is if we don't learn to make peace with the people we're in conflict with, we're in big, big trouble. And I'll keep coming back to this, but I often have said there are two central meanings, I think, that keep popping up in the Bible. One is that God is on the side of the oppressed and wills their liberation. Uh, two is that if we don't learn to love our enemies, we're all in big, big, big trouble here. And I think that's part of what this story is hinting at. But, but what about for us as we think about this story? Um, and, and if you draw other meanings out of this, and if you go through the Bible and you read the story and you're like, oh, please let me know. I, I heard from some people last week and it was really, really interesting. 
So I think a couple of things. First, I think this was a reminder that God will always be found among the victims and not the victimizers. The assumption made in the ancient world and often in our world is that to be powerful is to be blessed. That to be powerful, that the powerful, the wealthy, the people in charge, the people pulling the strings, I mean, that they have the gods on their side. The ancient world believed this. And in so many ways, we believe this today, right? If something good happens, we're blessed. If something bad happens, the gods are against us. And, and yet what we find from cover to cover in the Bible is that God is located among those who are on the underside of power. God doesn't just love an underdog. God is embodied, encountered, and experienced in the marginalized and excluded. Think about that over and over again in the Bible. It is the underdog. It is the marginalized, and it is the excluded that embody God. God does not show up as a Roman Caesar in the New Testament. We, God is experienced in a peasant Jewish rabbi. I mean, this is again and again, God is the liberator of the oppressed. God wills the liberation of the Israelites, from their, the Hebrews from their captivity, their slavery in Egypt. From cover to cover, the library we call the Bible picks up this theme and develops it. Those who have been a victim of the powerful are not forgotten by God. Crucifixions do not have the last word. The unexpected resurrections do. Right? That happens again and again and again in the Bible. The actual gospel will always be found on the margins among the poor and the oppressed who long for justice and liberation. It is why we struggle so much in America. I think, to understand what, what is gospel. Because when it's announced as good news for the poor and that there's so much wealth and so much, but we have more wealth and more power than any empire the world has ever known. And for those of us who have lived a life of privilege, just based on the fact of where we were born, what our skin color, what our gender, what our sexual orientation, what our gender identity was, all of those sorts of things, that when we, when I, me, when I approach these things, it is at the beginning point, I have to begin to check all of this privilege to understand that when people are announcing the gospel, it's often not about good things for me, but it's about people being rescued from the things that people like me have perpetuated within human history. So I think that's one of the first, it's a reminder that it's actually in Esau. It's in the bamboozled. It's in the guy who gets completely duped by his brother, mistreated, excluded. It is in Esau that God's face is seen, not in Jacob's. And then second, I think it's this reminder that forgiveness and not revenge create the possibility for healing and wholeness to occur. I mean, I, you can't tell me Esau didn't want to just, just deck his brother at the very least. And yet Esau approaches this story in a way that allows them to go in peace. And, and uh, can we be honest, does anybody else want to just see Jacob get what's coming to him here? After everything that's happened, all his, the benefits he's gained by, by deceiving and tricking and stealing from Esau. And yet it's Esau's decision to refuse revenge and to extend peace that stops the cycle of pain. Now, boundaries are important, and there are some people who've been so toxic that we should not have proximity to them, nor should they have access to our lives. Forgiveness is not tied to proximity. Esau and Jacob, in the end, Esau invites Jacob to come to live near him, and Jacob goes a different way. They go their separate ways in the end, because maybe that was the healthiest thing, not to, to live side by side. There's so much water in the bridge, but in this meeting, they could begin the process of healing. Forgiveness isn't tied to proximity. Proximity actually has very little to do 
with those who've hurt us. Forgiveness is a journey we take to liberate ourselves from the smallness and coldness that holding a grudge and seeking revenge will bring into our lives and into our hearts. Uh, we're we're going to pick up this theme a little bit again next week because we're going to jump into the story of Samson, which is um, a whole other kind of crazy story about what happens when revenge becomes your, your motive. And in this story, we see Esau extending compassion, extending the beginnings of a journey of forgiveness when he had the power and he could finally do whatever he wanted to his brother. He does this and it is in his face that the face of God is seen. It is in the victim that God is embodied. I mean, that's what Jesus says, right? That if you want to find when you've actually been serving Christ, it's when you've been serving the least, the left out the marginalized, the forgotten, the hungry. That's where you encounter the Christ. God in the New Testament doesn't show up in a Caesar's robe. He shows up in the dusty sandals of a peasant rabbi. There's something profound there that often we go looking for God as if that were a thing we could do. And we go looking for God and we look in all the wrong places because we'll find God in the margins. We'll find God where everybody else has essentially called something or someone God forsaken. I think this story, with, with all of its twists and turns, and with the, the, the traditional reading of this story, which sort of vilifies or at least makes Esau seem like not really thoughtful, good. I mean, it's Esau. It's Esau who embodies the God presence in this story. And I think for me, I, I want to I want to think about that. I want to think about my tendency to want to root for Jacob when it's actually in Esau that we find the divine. 